Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matthew chapter 3, second part of the chapter, audio Matthew 3b. Last time we were talking about how John the Baptist was ringing down the changes on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, breathing hellfire and damnation on them because of their lack of repentance and their lack of fruit. We said that the wrath to come was probably the wrath that was coming from the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem and laid it and burned it to the ground, laid it waste in AD 70. John the Baptist continues with his Jeremy ad uh, in chapter in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says this, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And, of course, the trees that were not bearing good fruit was referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, you notice it was the axe, the axe of judgment, the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, was laid at the root of the trees. Not just the branches were going to be cut off. It wasn't going to be just some pruning, some trimming. It was going to be timber, the whole trees coming down. Now, some people say that these, when these branches, when the tree is thrown into the fire, it's the fire of hell at the end of time. I don't believe that. I believe it was in the fire of Jerusalem when they were burnt down, when the city was burnt down, because that's a much more immediate judgment on the Pharisees and the Sadducees that John the Baptist was preaching against. Now, this idea of a tree being thrown into the fire, a tree being cut down, this is prophetic imagery, sort of a standard prophetic symbol. Trees being cut down. It, is, it was customary for prophets to refer to trees when describing the ruin of nations or individuals. For example, here's some scriptures. Jeremiah 46, verses 22 through 23. Its sound moves along like a serpent, for they, and this is referring to the Babylonians, move on like an army. So the Babylonian army is moving like a snake. And this army comes to her, referring to Egypt, as woodcutters with axes. They have cut down her forest, declares the Lord. Surely it will no more be found, even though they are now more numerous than locusts and without number. So the numerous Egyptian army was going to be cut down by the Babylonians like trees in a forest. Ezekiel 31, verse 3 refers to Assyria. Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds. So Assyria is said to be like a tree. Here Ezekiel is comparing Egypt with Assyria, and he's saying Assyria got chopped down, and you too, Pharaoh, in Egypt, you're going to get chopped down too. Dropping down to verse 11 in Ezekiel 31, God says, Therefore I will give it, referring to Assyria, into the hand of a despot of the nations, that's Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he will thoroughly deal with it. According to its wickedness, I have driven it away. Alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down, cut the tree down of Assyria, and left it on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken. Broken branches, broken brows, cut down trees. And all the ravines of the land and all the peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. So the tree is no longer giving shade because it's cut down, broken in the valley. So that's a typical prophetic symbol. And John the Baptist, again, was a prophet. And he's talking about trees being cut down. Going on to verse 11, Matthew 3. As for me... John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the you here, is, he's not, John is not continuing his talk with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now he's referring to all the people who would come for repentance because he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, the people who want to repent. Now, notice he says, I baptize you with water. That favors the idea of pouring. Again, people love to debate the mode of baptism that John was using. But John Gill, good Baptist of the years, points out that in Hudati, the Greek should be rendered in water. N-E-N means, generally means in in Greek. 
Many other translations have with. I won't get into that. I believe, as I said in the last video, I believe that John the, baptizing, John the Baptist was plunging them under the water, covering them so that the water got all the way down to the roots of their hair and to the top of it, to the ends, to the tips of their hair, until they were soaking wet. All right. Now he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Of course, this doesn't mean that the water was the instrumental cause of the repentance. It just means it was the agent that was used. He who is coming after me, of course, that's referring to Jesus, is mightier than John. How is Jesus mightier? Well, he had greater power and authority than John. He did greater and more miracles than John. In fact, I'm not aware of John doing any miracles. He just preached. Uh, and, of course, Jesus resurrected and redeemed the human race, which John did not do. So, yeah, John was very precise about this. Jesus was a lot mightier than he was. He said he's not fit to remove the sandals of this Messiah that's coming because removing sandals was the typical work of a slave. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy of a slave's work to deal with this man that's coming after me. Great Hebrew hyperbole here. John exhibits true humility. This is despite the fact that thousands were coming to hear him preach. He could have started a revolution. He could have started a new religious movement, a denomination, a movement. And, he said, and he, instead, he said, nah, the one I'm preaching about is bigger than me. Now, he says uh, that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Now, this is a controverted verse here. First of all, when is the, this Jesus baptism in the Holy Spirit occur? Well, there's two options. One is the falling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and I think that's the way most people take it. The fire would then be the cloven tongues of fire that rested on their heads, most probably. Uh, assuming we don't want to divide um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire into two separate events. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But let's just assume that this is the Holy Spirit falling on the day of Pentecost, and then the fire referring to judgment on the Jewish nation. The NIV Study Bible puts it this way. I'll talk about those options in a minute. But let's just, let's just return to the, the first question of, when is this falling of the Holy Spirit that John baptizes that Jesus is going to perform? Well, is it on the day of Pentecost? Well, uh, of course, we know it was fulfilled at Pentecost because uh, in jo Joel 2, verses 28 through 29, this verse was quoted in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit did fall. And it has come to pass afterwards, I do pour out my spirit on all flesh and prophesied, uh, have your sons and your daughters, your old men do dream dreams, your young men do see visions, and also on the men servants and on the maid servants. In those days, I do pour out my spirit. Of course, that's a very famous falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Jerusalem. But now, is another possibility, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit didn't just happen in Pentecost. There were four other places besides Pentecost. There was Samaria, when the Samaritans were filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul the Apostle was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 9. Cornelius' house, they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 10. And the twelve disciples of Ephesus, the same thing happened. They received the Holy Spirit. I'm assuming that those uh, instances were, the, were essentially the same thing that happened at Pentecost. That's because I am a charismatic. Now, if you're not a charismatic and don't believe that, well, look at my YouTube videos on charisma, and I go through that, uh, that in, I think, one of the, the videos. But I think it's very easy to show that uh, what was happening there was the same thing that was happening at Pentecost. And so if that's the case, then when John the Baptist prophesies that uh, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, he was not talking just about those guys at Pentecost. He was talking about all of us that followed that became Christian. Going on now to verse, uh, let's go back to the fire. You're baptizing in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now here, you basically got four options here. First option is that fire is just another name for the Holy Spirit. So when John says Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he's just saying, he's just repeating himself. John will just baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the fire would be referring particularly to those cloven tongues of fire at Pentecost, which occurred at that baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And basically, fire is in apposition with the Holy Spirit. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, comma, with fire, apposition, like Luke, comma, the doctor. That's one option, and it's a good. And these options are close. It's hard to tell which one it is. Here's the second option: believers will be purified by suffering. So John is saying that Jesus will baptize his believers in the Holy Spirit, and then they will suffer, even as Jesus was tried in the wilderness after being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That could be. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown hold to that option. Option C. Uh, this is referring to judgment of individual non-believers. You will be baptized talking about the repentant people, and then turning to the non-repentant people, and you are going to be baptized with fire, and you're going to get burnt up. That seems to fit the con... Well, no, let's, let me give you the fourth option. The fourth option is that John the Baptist was talking about judgments coming on the unbelieving Jewish nation. So what he's saying, he's just looking at the Christians, he's saying, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and, he's going to be, and he looks at the, at the Sadducees and the Fadducees in his audience and says, you're going to be baptized with fire, you're going to get wiped out when Rome burns down Jerusalem in AD 70. Now John Gill says that that seems to fit the context best as we look at the next verse, verse 12, and I agree with Gill. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, there, obviously, the fire is talking about judgment, burning up the chaff. So let's just assume that I'm right, that it, uh, John is referring to the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. The winnowing fork is the Romans. The Romans stick their fork into the into the um to the uh christian to the jews some of whom were christians and some of whom were not the romans throw them up into the air the wind blows the chaff out those are the non-christian jews they get burnt up because they stay in the city where the chaff stays and they get burnt up when the city gets burnt up but the christians are going to be gathered like wheat into the barn because they all escaped from jerusalem to pella and escape the judgment of the Romans. So I think that's what John's talking about. Let me stop right here and give you a war story. I, I was asked to speak at a Chinese worker meeting in uh, Shandong province in China, uh, right near where Confucius was born. I forgot the name of the city, but there was about 50 people in a farmhouse crammed into a farmhouse with the windows shut in the summer so that the cops couldn't hear us and it was burning up. And I'll never forget this because I went there with the intention of talking about baptism in water. That's because the Chinese have some strange ideas in general. Chinese Christians have strange ideas about baptism in water, and I wanted to make sure that everything was straight. So I got up there, and I talked about three baptisms, baptism in water, baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and baptism with fire. Now, at the time, I took baptism with fire to be suffering. I've changed my mind. I think it's referring to 87. But at the time, I thought it was suffering, and I thought this would be good for Chinese Christians because they obviously suffer a lot, getting thrown in jail all the time and persecuted. But the ironic thing was they had no trouble with baptism in water. They didn't seem to be interested in baptism with fire, but one of them came to me during the break and said they want to hear about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I said, you don't know about that already? I thought they did. No, they didn't know. So I said, okay. So we had a special session, and I briefly went through the passages in Acts. And by golly, just like at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. They were staggering around just like they were drunk. They were all speaking in tongues. And, of course, I had to listen closely because I had to distinguish Mandarin from Cantonese water or dialect. But there was no question it was it was speaking in tongues. And so I thought, okay, well, they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't think that uh, the fire was really referring to suffering in that case. But at any rate, let's assume that the baptism of fire is the baptism of judgment on the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That seems to me more relevant because a general judgment day at the end of time, which a lot of people take this burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire, is talking about burning up unrepentant sinners at the end of time. But 
John was really aiming at those Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were literally about to get burnt up 40 years from then. It seems to me that it makes the prophecy more meaningful, more closely fulfilled than to refer it to the second coming when Jesus turns back, comes back. All right, let's talk about the unquenchable fire. Some people say unquenchable fire, that's got to refer to hell. Well, the Roman city burning down was unquenchable. They couldn't put it out. The whole city was burning. It was nobody put it out. It burned out, but it was not quenched by anybody. Besides, it's just a metaphor. Hell is also said to be a place of outer darkness. How can outer darkness have fire? These are metaphors. It just means hell is a very unpleasant place. We don't need to take the metaphors so tightly and so literally. All right, let's go to verse 15. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, permitted him, permitted Jesus to be baptized. All right, now, what time was this? John had probably been preaching about six months before Jesus started in his ministry. Jesus is in Galilee. Uh, the parallel passage in Mark 1 verse 9 says he came more particularly from Nazareth. So probably what happened, Jesus was up at Nazareth being a carpenter, minding his own business, preparing himself until all of a sudden he hears about all of this spiritual activity going down there in Judea, and he probably figures my time has come to start my ministry. Now, as a point of application here, you want to start ministering for Jesus? There's several things you need to do to get ready. If Jesus is our example, let's look at what he did. First of all, he went out of his way to go get baptized in water, to publicly proclaim himself in his case, as the Messiah, in our case, as followers of the Messiah. He publicly proclaimed that he was the Messiah. He got baptized in water. Then he got baptized in the Spirit. We should do the same thing, as even D.L. Moody said that, as uh, C.T. Sudstead, as well as all those nasty, emotional charismatics, they also said the same thing. But I'm talking about C.T. Studd and D.L. Moody. They said the same thing. So did Jesus got baptized. And then what happened? God sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for training. You know, and that likewise, we are going to have to go through a period of trial, severe trial, until we're trained and hardened so we can deal with the spiritual conflict that's involved in ministering in the body of Christ. All right, so Jesus goes down to the Galilee in order to, to be baptized by him with the purpose of being baptized. John tried to prevent him. Why did John try to prevent him? Well, because he thought that since Jesus was sinless, what does he need to do to be baptized? Baptism symbolizes purification. Why does Jesus need to be purified? Well, but uh, Jesus um, went ahead and said, no, baptize me. Why? He wanted to show approval of John's baptism. He wanted to show that the baptism, that John's message was from heaven. He wanted to set an example to his followers. Followers, They were going to be baptizing other people, and they were going to be baptized themselves. He wanted to set the good example. And so he is our example. Jesus is our example. He did it, even though he didn't need to be baptized. Now, John said he tried to prevent Jesus in verse 14. So that shows that he knew he was looking at the Messiah. He was saying, no, 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 you're the Messiah, you're sinless, I don't need to baptize you. So now there's some questions. How did John the Baptist know that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, there's some options to answer that question. Maybe he was kin to him, John Kill says. Maybe John and Jesus had met before. You know, Jesus was up in Nazareth in the north, and John was in the south near in the outskirts of Jerusalem in the Judean wilderness. But they might have talked because they were kinfolk, cousins. Uh, maybe uh, Jesus came down a little bit before the baptism and talked to John privately before he started his public ministry. Or maybe at night when the crowds had gone home, maybe Jesus had talked to him. Maybe it was a direct revelation on the Holy Spirit. These are all speculations by John Gill. 
Jameson Fawcett and Brown speculates that Jesus waited till all the others had been baptized for the day and then talked to them privately. And then, and Jesus kind of stood out when everybody left. He remained, and John the Baptist saw him and said, this guy's special. Well, how do we know that Jesus was baptized after everybody else? We look at the parallel passages in passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, or now after all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and when he was praying, the heaven was open. So this baptism of Jesus happened after everybody else had been finished being baptized. Well, I don't know how he knew, but he knew. But now here's another problem. In John, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, where we are, John recognizes Messiah because he tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. But in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 33, John the Baptist says he didn't recognize Jesus. Whoops, do we have a contradiction in the Bible? You know, the Bible's got errors in it, the liberals say. John 1, 33, I did not recognize him, John says, but he, was, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, here is how we can reconcile this. First of all, John didn't recognize Jesus, certainly. He thought that Jesus was the Messiah, maybe because he was the last one being baptized. He was hanging around, and he, you know, he looked special. He looked at John. He wasn't sure, so he asked God, and God says, look, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to confirm. That's how you're going to know for sure. Now, before the Holy Spirit fell, John assumed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't know for sure. But then when the Holy Spirit did descend and fall on him, that confirmed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, this is, uh, you can look at Barnes' commentary on this verse, and he says basically the same thing, not in quite a full measure as I just gave it to you, but he says that the descending Holy Spirit confirmed what John had earlier thought. And I think that reconciles it pretty good. No liberals, the Bible does not have contradictions in it. All right, let's go to uh, fulfill in verse 15. To fulfill all righteousness, Jesus said he's going to be baptized. In other words, to completely carry out the will of the Father. All right, even as Jesus, even as the high priest in the Old Testament was initiated into his office by washing and anointing, that's in the Levitical rituals, Jesus also was initiated into his high priestly office by washing and anointing. So you got the high priest in the Old Testament was washed, and Jesus, the new Israel high priest, he was washed. Jesus has already been sub subjected to circumcision when he was eight days old. He's going through all the, the Jewish things, and, and now he's high priest. He's qualified to be high priest, circumcised and baptized. All right, let's go to verse 16, Matthew 3. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Now, the Holy Spirit did not come upon Jesus to overcome sin, obviously, because Jesus was sinless. However, he did come to equip Jesus for his work as the Messiah. Jesus, the Son, used, employed God, the Holy Spirit, to help him do his ministry. And I think that's because he's an example to us. We ourselves also need the Holy Spirit to carry out our ministry. Now, Jesus came up from the water. That sounds like he was under the water and came up from the water because that's how you get baptized. However, the sprinklers out there, the pourers out there got to argue against this. So they say, no, nah, he just went down in the water up to his ankles. And then John leaned down and grabbed, put some water in a container and then poured it on his head or took his fingers in the container and sprinkled it on his head. Pedal baptism, for some strange reason to me, 
well, not just pedo-baptism, but sprinkling baptism, holds an incredible hold on people's minds. It's just inc- it just amazes me how people can believe that. Well, here, let me give you a quote from John Gill, the good Baptist that he was in the 1800s. He says this, One would be at a loss at first sight for a reason why the evangelist should relate this circumstance. For after the ordinance was administered, why should he stay in the water? Why, in other words, why does John the Baptist say that Jesus came up out of the water? What should he do there? Why would he stay in the water? Everyone would naturally and reasonably conclude, without the mention of such a circumstance, that as soon as his baptism, baptism was over, he would immediately come up out of the water. However, we learn this from it, that since it is said that he came up out of the water, he must have first gone down into it, must have been in it, and was baptized in it, a circumstance strongly in favor of baptism by immersion, dipping, dunking. For that Christ should go down to the river, more or less deep to the ankles or up to the knees, in order that John should sprinkle water on his face or pour it on his head, as is ridiculously represented in the prints, can hardly obtain any credit with persons of thought and sense. Ooh. Well, I guess Presbyterians do have thought and sense, but uh, they don't sound very thoughtful and sensible to me when they start talking about pedo-baptism. Okay, well, that was John Gill, the Baptist. Here's Charles Hodge, the Presbyterian, the Reform guy, 19th century, old Princeton Seminary, leading light and luminary. He said this, Others say that Jesus could have been standing in the river as he was poured upon or sprinkled. Well, I don't think so. Okay, Behold, the heavens were opened, in verse 16, and he saw the Spirit of God descending. That's either Jesus or John the Baptist. It's not really clear uh, who saw the Holy Spirit descending, but somebody did. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown actually say it was only John the Baptist and Jesus that saw the Spirit descending. The bystanders apparently saw nothing. I find that hard to believe. A lot of them might have gone home because it was late, but it <clears throat> doesn't really matter. Somebody saw it. I believe they saw it. Now, what was it that he saw? It says the Holy Spirit, like a dove, fell. Now, whatever it was, it was visible in the sensual realm because they saw it. S-A-W, saw. Now, what was this dove? Now, here's some options. First of all, it was Holy Spirit in the shape of a dove. There's a metaphor here. The Holy Spirit is compared to something. Uh, either into the, sh- sh- the Holy Spirit is compared to the shape of a dove, option number one, option number two, to the motion of a dove. Let's talk about, let's assume that it's the shape of a dove first. This would be a fitting symbol because like the Holy Spirit, a dove is innocent, chaste, pure, humble, affectionate, simple, meek, loving, harmless, sincere, and has shrinking modesty. So, so yeah, that could be a, uh, that's a good symbol for the Holy Spirit. However, uh, option number two is that it was not really like a dove in, the, in its shape, but like a dove in its motion. The point of comparison being the motion, because a, a, a dove descends, it hovers, it lights on something, like, it, like the Holy Spirit looked like it was lighting on Jesus' head. Uh, John Gill thinks that makes sense. Adam Clark said that's far-fetched. I don't know. I suspect it was the Shekinah glory of God, very similar to the tongues of fire that fell upon the believers at Pentecost. When they got baptized in the Holy Spirit, something like fire fell on their heads, and here we have something like a dove, but it could be something shining bright white like a dove, like the Shekinah glory of God. I don't know for sure what it was. It was a metaphor. The Holy Spirit was like a dove in some sense. All right, now the Holy Spirit rested on him, on the Messiah. Now, this resting, well, we, we know this from a parallel passage in John 1, verses 32. Uh, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. So this light, this Holy Spirit, Shekinah glory, uh, remained on Jesus' head. Now, um, this 
sort of fits the prophecy of Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit stayed there. He didn't just bounce off and disappear. He stayed on Jesus' head for a while, driving the poor home, if you will. Now, the interesting thing in the parallel passage in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 10, it says the heavens were actually torn open, quote-unquote torn. As soon as he came out of the water, Mark says, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. Let's go down to verse 17 in Matthew 3. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, here's the standard argument for the Trinity, because we have the three persons of the Trinity right here in this passage. First, you have the voice from the Father, and then we have the Son, because he was being baptized. The voice from heaven was the Father, the Son, and the river was being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove was was the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I remember real very well when I was at a training session for an accelerated Christian education principles job that I had, and I was rooming with a Pentecostal, excuse me, a Jesus-only Pentecostal uh, pastor who was didn't believe in the Trinity. And I thought, I can't believe this. I got a heretic here who's going to teach kids. And so we started talking, and I pointed this verse out to him. I said, how, do you, how can you say that there's just one person in the Trinity when this verse right here, it's impossible? He looked at that. His eyes got as big as saucers. He said, I've never seen that before. This is amazing. I might need to change my opinion just by showing him that one verse. That was very encouraging. All right. Now, the voice said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is an allusion to two Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 2, verse 7 says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So God has already said that Jesus is his son in Psalms. In Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 1 Isaiah, God says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, which is just another way of saying in whom I I am well pleased. So God is quoting Old Testament scripture here as he baptizes Jesus in the Holy Spirit. All right, now let's look at the word this. This is my beloved son. Matthew has this as in the third person. God is speaking to the people around saying and pointing to Jesus and saying, this is my beloved son. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, the voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Luke has it the same way. God could have said both statements, one behind the other. He could have said, first he could have said to Jesus, you are my beloved son, and Mark records that. Then he could have looked at all. The, then he could have said to the, all the other people of the crowd, "This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased." That's not a contradiction in the Bible, liberals. Okay, we're finished with Matthew three. We'll take up Matthew four, the first part of Matthew four, at least, in the next video. Hope you enjoyed this one.